podcasting from the beautiful Mile High City. You're listening to the Do It Again podcast, the official podcast of scientific wrestling, the undisputed leader in no-holds-barred catch-as-catch-can wrestling. Here's your host, Jake Shannon. And welcome to the Do It Again podcast, the official podcast of scientific wrestling, the undisputed leader in No Holds Barred Catches Catch Can Wrestling. I am your host, Jake Shannon, and uh, I got to tell you, this podcast has been so fun because I basically get to sit and talk with some of my heroes, some of my closest friends, uh, just really amazing guys and get uh, to turn everybody else on to these guys that I know so well. And today uh, is very special. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine and just like truly a superhuman human being in my estimation. Uh, the man, the legend, the best pinner of all time, Wade Chalice. Welcome, Wade. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks. I do appreciate it. Looking forward to the little conversation here. Yeah, so... Uh, I've known you, I think it's gotta be 2000 since 2005 or earlier. Um, is that about right? Well, we're both older than dirt. So I guess that <laughs> maybe fell into that category. It's, it's, it was about, about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And, um, I was on my quest trying to put everything together, trying to kind of resurrect a sport and, um, a huge, if not the hugest part of the sport is pinning. And of course I had to go to the man, you to find that, you know, the science of pinning, the strategies, the techniques, the things that all made you so, I mean, truly amazing. Your, your competitive record is, is, is truly mind blowing. So for those of you who don't know uh, who Wade is, because we have people from MMA, we have people from pro wrestling, um, People from from folk style wrestling, freestyle wrestling, they will know who you are. But for those who don't, Wade holds the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the most wins and pins of anyone who's ever competed in wrestling. He's uh, also holds uh, the record for defeating the most um, national champions, the most international champions. Um, you're an all American in five different combat sports. Is that right? Uh, sambo, freestyle, judo. Folk style and Greco-Roman. Uh, it, it so far so good, right, Wade? Yeah, they didn't have UFC when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, so which you would have probably totally killed, and and that that reminds me now, like you know, Ben Askren is really um, doing a great job, and a lot of people kind of, I'm sure you've heard this, uh, make kind of comparisons between the two of you. Um, what have you been following Ben's path in UFC and MMA at all? Yeah, I worked with Ben when he was in high school and college as a wrestler. I'm a little bit older than he is. And uh, I followed his career. He's doing a wonderful job. Um, he's, he's just a dominant wrestler. I mean, if there's, if there's one guy that came from wrestling, and there's so many, so very many, that are in the UFC from the sport, uh, he's probably the one that, is, that uses a, a, the largest portion of wrestling to defeat his opponents. I mean, you know, uh, all the other wrestlers have to learn striking and counter striking and 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 defeating or uh, neg uh, neg negating a jujitsu player, 
but uh, uh, Ben spends most of his most of his time fighting in the uh, octagon using wrestling skills, and he's very dominant. He gets one takedown. I mean, I, I don't want to simplify what he's achieved, but he, he gets one takedown for each one of the three or five rounds that he's fighting on any particular night, and then the guy on the bottom never gets back up. Yeah. I mean, he, he takes him down and controls him and stays there and gets enough shots in to build up enough points that he gets his hand raised at the end. Uh, you won't see a lot of fisticuffs flurrying with uh, with Ben, but once he gets his hands, you know, basically what's good about wrestling when it comes to any of the martial arts, I look at wrestling as, if you think of the Olympic rings, the five Olympic rings and how they're interwound with one another, well, jude, I mean, wrestling is like having a three-ring Olympic uh, design uh, in the UFC comp- uh, nature. You have the center ring, which is the larger of the two rings. They, they're, they're different sizes. The center one is the wrestling ring. And the one on the left, a smaller ring, which is inter- interlocked with wrestling, is your striker or boxer. And on the other side is another small ring, which is your down wrestling or your jiu-jitsu type of a person. And so all three are important to be successful. But if you're going to have one skill over any one of the other two, you want to be a wrestler because it's the larger of the ring. Yeah, the and I think... I think that statistics uh, support you 100% too. Like when you look at the the statistics in in mixed martial arts, wrestle people with re- strong wrestling backgrounds, uh, you know, maybe coming up through high school or college or whatever, um, with with folk style and freestyle, they tend to really dominate once they get into these mixed contests. Well, yeah, in, in order to hit a guy, you have to touch him. If you're going to touch him, he's going to get a hold of you. If he gets a hold of you, he's going to get you down, and you're not going to get back to your feet to hit him again. So let me right. Let me ask you something because with with Askren, um, a word that comes up again, people outside of uh, the um, folk style freestyle community may not really know what it is, but a lot of people say funk wrestling, like funk wrestling, and Ben Askren have become synonymous, but. You're the the godfather of funk. I mean, that's what I've heard you, many people call you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what what is what is funk wrestling as opposed to say like maybe like a a Gable style or a Smith style or you know what is what is, what is funk wrestling? Well, let's let's equate it to basketball. If, for those who are listening to this, you know, to this podcast, you know, when you go back to Bill Walton or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or even earlier than that where they had funky-looking uniforms, and they had to do chess passes, and um, there was ne- it was, you never were allowed to dribble between your legs or throw a ball behind your back. Um, it was basic, basic basketball. And then, uh, you know, as uh, more of the street basketball came in, you saw a lot more uh, slam dunks, whoopty-dipty-doodles, and pass behind your back. And I would consider that to be funk. They're, they're, they broke from the traditional chest pass, uh, jump shot, layup, that's it. Uh, and it made, it made the sport of basketball so much more exciting to watch. Uh, and wrestling is very similar. You know, you have your basic style, which was taught, you know, I want to say decades ago, maybe even epochs ago, where it was a single leg, double leg stand up, grab it when you're riding, grab his ankle, hang on, sink your teeth into him, and, and don't move for two minutes until the referee should get off. Uh, which was quite boring. Uh, it, it, and I said, well, there's so many different ways of ending up on top. I mean, you, okay, he's got my leg in the air. What do I do now? Well, 
traditional wrestling say you're t- basically says you're taken down so give up turn turn your back go on down to your hands and knees and see if you can do a stand up or reversal uh you have my leg up in the air i'm going to, well i can jump over top of your head and crawl down the back of you i can jump i can dive in between your legs and come up from behind or i can grab one of your legs and pick it up so we both have single legs you know i started saying there's so many more things you can do as a counter to a single or a double or whatever you want to, you know, I'm just using a single leg as an example here. So funk wrestling is basically the creativeness of today's basketball versus what, what happened in the fifties and sixties. But you were like a real innovator with it. I mean, cause I, I, I've known you for so goddamn long and we've traveled the world and I've had the privilege of hearing some of these stories and, you know, I know how it goes. You don't want to toot your own horn and all that, but I mean, you really, as a young man, as a young athlete, while you're trying to kind of innovate and create, you ran into a lot of kind of uh, you bumped a lot of uh, you bumped heads with a lot of your coaches too. Isn't isn't that fair? While you're trying to do your own thing. Well, of course. I mean, you know, coaches. You know, traditionally because they're older than you are, that's why they're a coach and you're still the athlete. Came from a different decade, and uh, you know, and and everything you know from business today from. Uh, building homes to uh, technology, uh, you know what was what was in vogue and 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 cutting edge in 1950, sure as hell wasn't in 1970. And today in 2000, 2000 plus, just things have changed dramatically. And wrestling and the sports have changed. And your coaches, being older than you, have come from that uh, decade, two or three decades before you. Uh, so they're typically traditionally conservative in relation to what's going on today. Um, I would imagine that uh, uh, some of the great old basketball coaches of years ago or even the wrestling coaches uh, of the 30s, 40s, and 50s would would be ro- rolling over in their grave watching wrestling today because it's so unique to them. You know, they, they were conservative. No wage. You, when I wrestled you, when you were riding on top, you had to pick up an ankle and hang on to, hang on to it, tight waist and ankle. Uh, and I said to myself, well, gee, I have skinny legs. I'm, I didn't come from the farm community, you know. I'm more of a city kid, so I yeah. didn't have the. I wasn't throwing bales of hay around. Uh, so they said, grab his ankle and grab his leg and hang on to him. I'm going, well, why the hell would I want to do that? I mean, his buttocks, cheeks, his thighs, his calves are the biggest muscles on his body, and I'm trying to control the strongest part of his body with the weakest part of mine, you know, my arms and the shoulders. Uh, that didn't make sense to me. I thought, well. You know, up around his neck and shoulders and, and, and uh, arms are smaller, weaker. And that's also where the oxygen comes in his mouth, goes down to his lungs. That's where the blood goes up through his veins of his neck into his brain to make him think. You know, if I can cut that off, slow it down so he gets a little dizzy-headed or, or I can slow down his breathing so he runs out of gas halfway through the match, that's the place I want to be. And it's also skinnier up there, and it's a lot easier to hang on to his arms than it is his thighs. So, you know, my philosophy was get off his legs. What the hell are you doing back there? You know, that's craziness. You know, get up on his head. Well, the coaches that I had came out of the 50s and 60s. When I came, when I was wrestling primarily in my, my heyday was in the 70s, uh, they would yell at me about doing things that, you know, that was not taught to me by them. And that I butted heads all the time. And I go, I don't, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but explain it to me uh, the neck skinnier the arms are smaller I, uh, he breathes up here he blood flow why am i not up there you know and because i said so coach because you said so doesn't count with me you know come up with a reason i mean you know other than i told you so you know and i'm i'm all in 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'll say that, like, as a tall, lanky wrestler, I wish I would have known of you much earlier in my life because, I mean, literally the way you wrestle is like, I mean, it was such an epiphany for me as a taller, skinnier guy because I was trying to wrestle like a short, stockier guy, and it just never worked. Well, yeah, yeah. When I when I teach and coach these days, I go in, and I, one of the things that I think are just I'm the only guy in wrestling that's saying this, and I just it drives me crazy that no one else has come up with this before me or even sees the wisdom of it. When, that basically there are two types of wrestlers: tall ones and short ones. Okay. And it's in the same weight class. And you have to determine, you know, when you go to weigh-ins and you look at the guy next to you who's weighing in at your weight class, you know, are you always taller than that guy or are you always shorter than that guy? Typically, you're one or the other. And so then you can say, well, this particular year, before I had my growth spurt or whatever, I'm taller than anybody else or I'm shorter. Okay. In basketball, if you're five, five foot four, I don't care how bad I teach you to jump and how great a coach I am, you're not going to be the center on the basketball team, period. You're 5'4". You're not 6'11". 6'11 people are usually horrible outside shooters, you know, but they're tremendous under the boards, okay? In football, if you're a 320-pounder, you're not the free safety. Yeah. You know, you're the, you're the nose guard middle linebacker. <laughs> right. You know, you know, so you have different skill sets based on your body type. In wrestling, you're a tall or short. There are techniques that are known for that are be successful to tall kids and there are success techniques that are really good for short people. You know, short people have three distinct skill sets that the tall kid doesn't have. The short kid in the same way class is always, is always faster than the, his taller counterpart. He's always stronger and he also has more power. Okay. than the tall guy, the tall guy has three uh, distinct advantages over the short guy. He has greater reach. He has more leverage and he has more flexibility based on his length. So you have to take either your short speed power or your tall reach and flexibility and find what techniques work best based on that. Yeah. A, a swing, you know, if, if your opponent is an oak tree, and, you know, if you're short and powerful, you go through the oak tree, double leg knocking flat on his backside. Okay. If you're tall and skinny, you don't, you're not faster than he is, you're not more powerful. You're not going to knock this tree over. You've got to go around the tree. You can't go through it. So tall, skinny kids have to do swing singles. High crotch, double leg is for the short guy. Right. If you're a tall guy and you try to do that, you better get used to losing because you're going to lose a lot. The you know the tall or the short squatty guy, uh, you know, is is uh, couldn't cradle anybody because his arms are too short to get his hands locked around a guy's head and leg. Now, Tall now, guys are, ma- are made to cradle. Now, sorry to interrupt, but we're we're actually coming up on our first uh, commercial break already. It's already twenty minutes in. I mean, I could you you have so much information; it, it is boggling. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled with you know being involved with trying to help uh, get people to be aware of what you have to offer. And I want to talk about when we come back. I want to talk about a little bit uh, how you came into it because you know. My, my passion is catch-as-catch-can, which is really the, the great-grandfather of folk-style wrestling, MMA, and even the WWE Vince McMahon stuff. It's this derivative product. And, I, you know, I, your introduction, I really do think that 
your, your the way you came into it at the YMCA really probably influenced a lot of your wrestling style in terms of you know legal pain and some of your philosophy. I want to get into that. Um, I also want to talk about uh, you, you're heading out to Ireland. Scientific Wrestling uh, Wade Chalice is going out to Ireland um, uh, here next month. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that and. Now, on top of everything else you've done, you've written a re- and I've read it. It's great. Your first uh, fiction novel. So I kind of want to get into all that when we come back, guys. Hang tight. We're sitting here with uh, Wade Chalice, legendary wrestler, uh, a- amazing human being. We'll be right back. Uh, Do it again. Podcast. Sit tight. Okay, thank you guys for uh, visiting our sponsors. They help keep the lights on here for us. Um, before the break, we were talking with Wade Chalice, talking about a whole host of things with regards to wrestling, but predominantly really uh, coaching strategy on coaching people with different body types. Um, I mean, Wade, it's amazing to me, you know, in, in the, my capacity with you in terms of trying to get people to know who you are and that kind of things. Why, why do you think more people don't know who you are? Like, you know, everybody knows like, oh, you know, Gable or, or, or even Jordan Burroughs or something. I mean, is it because of the Olympics? I mean, your, your resume, your, your CV is like the best. It's amazing. And yet, you know, I'm sitting here screaming from the mountaintops, guys, this guy is the bomb. And not only that, like five different combat sports, judo, Greco, Sambo. What what do you think it is? Is it because of the Olympics? I mean, it seems to me may, like it might be because the Olympics seems so important for wrestlers getting out there and getting known, like, uh, you know, amateur wrestlers. Well, when, when Gable came in, Gable was the Babe Ruth of wrestling. Uh, he was the first one that, the media clamored to and, and hung on to when he yeah. was coming, but he had just a tremendous career. Uh, and he, he is the Babe Ruth of wrestling. Uh, you know, the Mar- Rocky Marciano, uh, the first guy that you know made it, you know, and uh, in the international and national scene. And, uh, when I came up through was it right. I was only about two years you know, ahead or behind him. Uh, I came up in his shadow of course, a lot of people would say, well, if you're on the East Coast, you talked about Dan Gable, it, somebody would punch you in the mouth because that's Wade Chalice country. <laughs> if, you're in, if, you, if, if you were in the Midwest and you mentioned Chalice because I'm Gable fan, would punch you in the mouth. Right. Uh, and uh, Gabe and I rolled around a lot. I mean, he was a great one. Uh, no question about it. But I didn't come up, you know, I was a Super 8 projector, you know, uh, cameras were the, the in thing then. We didn't yeah. have video cameras. We didn't have uh, YouTube. We didn't have for people media. for people who yeah. don't know. That's like a film camera. It was a little person. It was like the first home film uh, video camera, but it was film. It was this little super eight millimeter film. It was quite difficult to work with. So you know, I didn't come up in a in a time where you know where like say Jordan today, uh, you know, and, and Kyle Dake, and uh, you know, there's you know, there's probably ten names I, I'm skipping over that are really, really outstanding young men and, and great athletes in wrestling that the media, you know, love. And today with, you know, uh, Snapchat and yeah, Facebook yeah. and so on, you, you know, you can get out there a lot. Uh, I didn't have that benefit. But, you know, coming up in the 70s, 
Gable was late sixties, early seventies. I was in early, middle, late seventies. Um, I had the biggest name out there, you know, during that, during that decade, uh, you know, following Gable's retirement. Um, and then, you know, it, 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 it's over the years has dropped off just because I'm older. I'm, you know, almost, almost 70 now. Uh, but when I, when I, when I finally passed, you know, and you had mentioned to the book that I just finished writing, you know, I was named coach of the year. I was athlete of the year. I was sports writer of the year. I was referee of the year. Uh, when, when you look at the total volume of the work that I've done in the sport of wrestling yes, and you and you rate per people that way, uh, I'm going to have to be in the top three somewhere. And I think, I'm, I don't know of anybody that's, that's given more back to the sport or done more things in the sport across the board, you know, from writing and, and, and officiating and coaching and, 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 and wrestling and winning. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it boggles my mind because I'm. Like one of your biggest fans. I mean, I just, what you've been able to accomplish and what I've learned from you, I mean, is like, I mean, is literally for me, somebody who wants to know as much as they can about wrestling. I mean, it's like sitting with an Einstein or a Tesla. I mean, you're really, you're a massive innovator, but, um, was it, was it, it was the 76 Olympics. You got a, a pretty serious injury right before, right? You'd beaten everybody who took gold at the 76 Olympics. You beat them at the world's. Yeah, I, I, I won the uh, Tbilisi tournament, which is tougher than the Olympics. Uh, it's a Russian national championship when you know there's 30 Russians in a weight class, you know, along with the Iranians and the rest of the country, the rest of the world as well. I was I won that, had all pins, was outstanding wrestler, was ranked. I was seated number one in the Olympics in '76, and I broke my neck right before the games, and I didn't get a uh. chance to go. And uh, uh, the person I beat, you know, that I finished ahead of in the Olympic trials, he took the bronze. And I pinned the silver medal winner that year. I didn't wrestle the gold, though. He was from Japan, Date. I didn't get a chance to get a hold of him. But uh, in my opinion, of course, that you know, it, anyone who's worth the salt has their own opinion. And mine is I would have walked through the Olympics, but I wasn't there, didn't get there. Sure. And so it was an opportunity missed. But I've only missed one match in my entire life due to an injury. So although it was a big one, yeah. um, uh, you know, it. it Things happen, and it happened, and you learn from it. You move on, and you get stronger because of it. And then, well, and then the same the same thing happened in the '80 Olympics, uh, not with an injury, but this time because of President Carter uh, pulling us out of the Olympics, right? Yeah, I I, I hung on to 1980 because I didn't get it in '76, and uh, won the world championships in '77, and had all pins, and was an outstanding wrestler. And then I took two years off while I was co- head coach at Clemson University. And then I came back in 80 and, uh, you know, I didn't go to the Olympic trials because they announced about three weeks before the trials that we weren't going to go to the Olympics and Carter was boycotting uh. Uh, the summer game. So I didn't get a chance to go there either. Uh, I, I think I would have walked through the, the 80 games as well. Uh, but, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, it, it, what I think and what will happen, I don't know. You know yeah, sure, sure, sure. Of course. I mean, so then... Right around that time is when you started really going full bore into Sambo. Is that right? Yeah. I had, uh, uh, well, I went to judo first. I, I, my fifth year in college, I wasn't eligible for the NCAAs. Um, so I had nothing to do that weekend of the NCAAs in wrestling. And uh, my roommate was in judo at, at, at Clarion University. And he said, why don't you go out for judo? I said, well, I'll come out for a night and screw around with it a little bit. 
and they happened to have the NCAA championship that weekend. He says, why don't you go to the NCAAs with us? I said, well, what are the rules? <laughs> you know, okay, I got to wear this white thing and I got a belt around my waist. What else do I got to do? And uh, so they taught me into going to the NCAA championships in, uh, in judo uh, with uh, one, night's, one, one night training. <laughs> and uh, they had to teach me how to tie my knot in the front, how to do a square knot. And uh, uh, I went to the nationals in the semifinals. Uh, there were, I think there were seven weight classes, I forget now. So that would put uh, semifinals. There were 28, 28 kids in the semifinals in different weight classes. And there were 27, or, yeah, 27 black belts and then me, a white belt. <laughs> they, were, they were so embarrassed that I was there as a white belt. They, they gave me a, a black belt there on the mat right before the semis. Uh, wow. So could, they moved me forward. I, I became a black belt immediately. And I won the semis and then won the finals. <laughs> Weren't you suplexing people or something? Yeah, I, I, I did various things that, you know, that I knew their skill set. I knew that if they got a hold of your jacket, if you weren't paying attention, you'd, you'd take a tumble. So I, I just kept my arms bay, bay a little bit, and I was doing singles and doubles before they got a hold of my jacket. And then, you know, I did a lot of back plays, belly to back. And, uh, you know, that, was, that would be a total of Pong, one point. That, that would end the match. And uh, right, after that, right after that tournament, the judo national judo committee outlawed suit plays because uh, i was I, a couple of guys walked off kind of dizzy after them on my head. Uh, but i had fun with it i mean i uh, to say you know i was a national champ for black belt in judo okay yeah was i you know did i get up through training no i didn't go through the, i didn't go through the pain and the rigors of you know having 10 years you know background in judo but um, I, I did well in judo and then that led to hey uh, Mike Chapman, which a lot of people know in the sport of wrestling, and yes. uh, as a writer, uh, he called me one morning. And I was in Phoenix. I was a head coach or assistant coach at Arizona State, and they had the national sambo championships in in Phoenix. And Mike called me. Said, "Hey, I'm going to go over there. Can we have lunch later?" I said, hey, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm going to sambo tournament." I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, it's kind of combination judo wrestling type of thing. You know, you, you wrestle, but you wear a judo jacket, and it, there's some rules of difference." I said, "Oh hell, I'll go. I'll wrestle too." So I show up, I wrestle, and I win the I win the Sambo Nationals, and they give me a black belt for that. Wow! Uh, and then uh, I had uh, I had the Olympic Olympic seventy six Olympic champion in judo from Japan in the finals, and I beat him. And it, it was Sambo, but he was the you know Olympic judo champion. Now that was the first time you. Uh, so up to this point, you're just pinning people like crazy. That's your kind of uh, bread and butter. But then as you go into judo and Sambo, you start realizing there's this kind of submission uh, side to the game. I, I, I enjoyed the submission. You know, in wrestling, you had to, you, you tried to make the kid quit, you know, and, and, and you try to submit them without breaking the rules, but at the same time, cranking it hard enough that you're, you're, you're just inside the legal or illegal, but you know, you're making the guy quit. Legal pain, yeah. legal pain. Yes. Yeah. Legal discomfort, temporary pain. Anyhow. And uh, so uh, I, if you listen to earlier the first half of the podcast where I was talking about tall and short and funk, I'm very, very creative, and I, I, I have the type of brain. I'm not a CEO. I couldn't handle something like that. You know, so I'm not saying I'm all gifted in this area or that area. What I know, I know really well, you know, better than almost anybody. You found and, your niche. In, in, in my niche. And in wrestling, it's, I, I, I know strategy, and I know the human body. So I could go to the NCAA Judo Championships and I can go to the National Sambo Championships without ever having competed in it and say, okay, here's my skill set in wrestling. 
what are the rules in judo? What are the rules in sambo? What do I have to look out for? How do I take my skill set, adapt it, stay away from these A, B, and C that I re- do really well in, in wrestling because it'll, it'll, it'll hurt me in judo or, or sambo? And how do I bring out D, E, and F that I'm really good at in wrestling that also will, will work well for me in the other sports? And what do I have to look out for? In jiu-jitsu, you don't, you don't go down on the mat and get between someone's legs when they're laying on their back. You, you stay there, the jiu-jitsu guy's going to whip you. You know, jiu-jitsu guys, you've got to take them on your feet. And, you know, when you get down on the mat, you know, don't let them roll to their back. And if they do, just get up off of them. You know, get away from their strengths. You know, and judo, or sambo has a similar type of philosophy. So I was able to, to make a, a quick ad- adaptation from wrestling to the other arts. You know, a lot of great wrestlers are really good. Like Jordan Burroughs is great at a double leg. Now, he can do so many things. He's very, very talented, very intelligent. But he's a double leg guy. Uh, double leg, just by in itself, if he brings that over to, to MMA and says, I'm going to double leg everybody, on the way in, someone's going to uppercut his jaw and knock him out. And, and by the way, by the way, one of the coolest days of my life was basically being a fly on the wall watching the uh, world championships with you and, uh, and Burroughs' coach, uh, JJ, uh, a couple years ago. When, uh, I think that was two years ago now. Uh, that was just an amazing, uh, an amazing uh, day. I mean, it, over the years, uh, traveling around with you has been really <laughs> super fun, but uh, also just such an educational experience. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I just really had to put that out there. You're, you're such a fount of knowledge. Well, you know, I've spent my life in this. I'd like to have, I, I'm an academic in, in a lot of ways. When I get with you around you and, and uh, Jake Shannon, I mean, um, uh, Josh Burnett. Yeah. Um, you know, Josh is, I mean, he is, the, I've never met anybody as smart as he is, as talented as he is in the UFC. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't met a lot of people there. I have not. But he's just one of the top. So between the two of you, when you start talking intellectually between Nietzsche and, and a few others, <laughs> you know, philosophical I go huh what? yeah that's you know, usually but, that's usually when we notice that you've fallen asleep in the in the passenger uh, chair we yeah. have to be like wait wait we're not talking about the boring stuff man yeah, okay we'll get back to wrestling <laughs> I, I, I know the human body and I know this I know competition I know how to how to bring out your strengths and hide your weaknesses and, yes and then, and then analyze uh, you know whoever I happen to be teaching to take a look at his body no watch him drill for 30 seconds and I can tell what his skill set is, what are his benefit, benefits, things that he's going to be great at, things he's going to get, be horrible at, and then and devise a plan of attack for specifically for him. Now, uh, unfortunately, he's always, that person, whoever that happens to be, has had one or two or three coaches, and coaches typically always teach the thing that made them good or great. Mm-hmm. You know, if, like Jordan would probably spend a lot of time on double legs. Well, you know, half half the people in the country are tall and thin, and th- they'll never get ever ever get a double leg on anybody any good. So you're wasting this guy's time. Yep. But coaches always teach the same thing that they've always taught themselves. What well, worked for me? Well, that's fine because you were two foot six. Okay, I got it. It works for you. You know, and you can pick up half of a, a tractor trailer with one arm. I can't. You know. Uh, so you, you have to adapt. You know, a, a guy's skill set to his to his body type and his and his intellect and 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 then make it work for him and uh, a lot of times i i have fights not fights but arguments with other coaches well that's not the way we're, we're going to do it here well 
you know, the way you're coaching is really good for seven of these kids, but the other 14, you're teaching them how to lose, coach. You well, know, and, and, and speaking of coaching, not to interrupt, so I do want to mention this. Uh, for people that are listening, especially in uh, Europe, we do our very best. I mean, we're pretty much a mom-and-pop operation. It's like <laughs> just me and, and you and a few other guys. Uh, but you're going to be out in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, it, the, the place is called Score Fight Club. Uh, you could contact uh, Peter McClay, the number, uh, if for any of you guys need to write this down. You can also message me and I'll send you the flyer. It's uh, 078-8249-8001. Again, eight, uh, 0788-249-8001. Contact Peter McClay uh, because you're going to be out there on the 14th of April uh, at Score Fight Club there uh, giving a seminar everybody and we've been so now we could put a pin on the map in northern ireland we've been all around the uk uh italy so if you guys want to book wade uh just go over to to the site pin and submit.com you'll see there's a we got a whole host of really talented coaches uh wade uh i think is at the top uh of the page so just go there click on fill out the form send us a form we can bring wade out to your uh to your gym so uh, Wade, one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, uh, before we kind of move on to the onto the book and stuff, uh, maybe you could tell people a little about uh, about how you came into the sport and the role the YMCA played because I know when when I was trying to figure out the lay of the land and how things worked and 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 basically doing what I'm doing to you with Billy Robinson and picking your brain and trying to figure things out. Um, you know, Billy used to say that, that back in the day, catch wrestling was all over the place. It's like dead now, or, you know, it's having a bit of a resurrection. Uh, but, uh, uh, it was everywhere. And the YMCA's were the place you just, any town you could roll into the YMCA, pick up a wrestling match. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you came into wrestling, uh, as, as a young man. Well, the YMCA, uh, it, I came in at the end of the YMCA's greatness. The the national champion, the YMCA national championships used to be the national champions, whereas today in wrestling it's USA Wrestling Nationals or the NCAA. But back in 1960s and earlier, it was the YMCA that hosted the national championships and sponsored them. And uh, you know, if you were a YMCA champ, you know, you were a stud. Today, if you say, "Yeah, I won the YMCA nationals," they go. What? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and uh, you know it'd be a joke. Where it wasn't a joke back then. The NAIA was serious competition in the '60s and '50s, and today the NAIA, there's you know, there's probably 15 high school kids that can beat some of the NAIA champs. Not that you know, I shouldn't be saying that to diminish the NAIA. They have some good competition too. But uh, I, I started at the YMCA only because a, a young gentleman who was the physical director, uh, just had taken a job in my hometown of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, I went up to introduce myself because, you know, I would lifeguard the YMCA and work there from time to time. And, and uh, I was sitting down, and I, it was a little short guy. He was 5'2", maybe 130 pounds, but he was built like a wedge, you know. It was, <laughs> he, he looked like a gymnast, you know, really strong upper body. And, and I noticed in the back of his uh, office, he had an old pair of wrestling shoes. And I, I looked over and I said, did you wrestle? He goes, well, I dabbled in the sport a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was a cocky soft. I just finished an undefeated 12-0, 12-pin sophomore JV season. <laughs> and uh, 
So you knew. So you knew everything at this point when you're I talking. I knew to everything. Yeah. I was Mister Everybody, and I went. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Want to wrestle? And he goes, No, I, I can't. I, I, I got class. I got to get ready for out. You know, maybe some other time. What are you afraid of me? You know, that did it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he said. All right, get downstairs, pull out the horsehair mats, put them together, the old five-by-eight horsehair mats. Wow. Them together, wow. You know, I'll be down in five minutes. So I get down, I'm ready to teach this guy a lesson, you know. And, you know, what was about, it seemed like an hour later, which probably was only 10 minutes later, but that seemed like an hour. I'm laying on my back. I'm bleeding out of both my nostrils, out of the side of my mouth. He's standing over top of me with one foot on one side of my chest, one foot on the other side of my chest, looking down, snarling. Pointing his finger in my face, going, "I hate a braggart," uh. <laughs> but, but but not as much as I love a winner. Do you have what it takes to come back tomorrow? Now I just got the hell beat out of me for the last <laughs> ten minutes, and I'm laying there. What am I going to tell this guy? No, you know. So I oh, okay, yeah, good. Tomorrow, seven a.m. in this room, mats together. You're dressed. Your shoes are on. You're ready to go. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Good. And if you're here at 7.01 tomorrow, you're early for the next day's practice. Do we understand each other? Yes, sir. I go home and tell my mother this. She's laughing, you know. Next morning, she's shaking me at 6 o'clock in the morning. Get up. you got to go to the YMCA. You know, what? I don't want to get up. I'm not going. Wait a minute. You gave him your word. Your word is your bond. Yes, sir. You're going, to, you're going today. If you don't want to go tomorrow, fine with me. Tell him today. But right now, get your butt out of bed. You're going to the Y. So I dragged myself up to the Y, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm on my back bleeding again. He's standing <laughs> over top of me, you know, not bad for a rookie, but do you have what it takes to come back tomorrow? <laughs> All summer, I got the hell beat out of me, you know, and, uh, and what and, was and, his and, name? What was his name? Gary McCarthy. And then six, six months later, I realized he was on our, yeah, I found out, I finally found out he was on our Olympic team in 64. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. He never told me I didn't know, but I was. And everything he, sh- I came home, mom. Everything he's showing me, I, it's all garbage. I've never seen it before. It's, not, I, I, it's, it's wrong. And she goes, well, he's kicking your pants with it. You might <laughs> pay attention. You know, it, as it turned out, it was my high school coach that gave a hundred percent of himself. He loved us to death, but he just really wasn't a technician. Yeah. And but Gary had all the technique, so I figured, well, yeah, he is kicking the hell out of me. I, maybe I should pay attention to it. So I started, you know buying into his philosophy and his technique and and uh, the rest is history i you know i started jumping i you know won the states and then had all pins in pennsylvania and high school and and uh, pinned the two-time defending state champ in the finals and i'd never even gone to states before um you know because i you know i had the right coach and at the right time when the student is ready the teacher will appear yes yes and so Spoke, spoken like a true like a true uh master or yoda or something because i mean you really yeah, are that amazing was, that was yeah that was a yodaism <laughs> so well, here's another thing that's that's interesting and then and listen i know that i ask you to tell the marshmallow story all the time i'm hoping maybe if i do it on this podcast i could just refer people so you don't have to tell it all the time i don't want to do that now but um, I do want to talk about something a little more serious and something that is uh, something that I'm very interested in. And your uh, your blog, uh, you spend a lot of time writing about this, and that is the nature or the impact 
of rule changes upon the sport and what are perhaps the optimal rule changes or maybe changes that need to be peeled back a little bit because, you know, the way I look at wrestling um, and, and, you know, I'm a little biased because, you know, I've dabbled a little bit in, 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 in all of it in my attempt to try to understand it, nowhere near the levels of, of, of yourself, but I've tried to understand it. And it, it reminds me a little bit of like how regulations not just in sports, but in business, have just exploded through the 20th century. Like, it used to be business, there wasn't a lot of regulations, and you could do this and that, and there were problems with it, like child labor and, you know, some problems that are not good. But then at a certain point, there's a tipping point where there's like too many rules, and it becomes difficult, uh, not just for the athletes, but for the spectators to follow. I was hoping maybe you could touch a little bit on you know, some of the changes you've seen that are maybe good, uh, but also some of the changes in the rules of wrestling that aren't so good. Because, I mean, going back far enough, there were, there were submissions in wrestling. I mean, you know, you could do double wrist locks and toe holds and things like that. And, and, and eventually that got banned. Uh, what is your, maybe you could tell people a little bit about your perspective on rules, rule changes, that sort of thing. Well, the, the rules, the, the, if we have a challenge and we have more than a challenge, we have, you know, we're life threatening decisions in wrestling uh, with the numbers. There's no reason why we can't be as important as the UFC uh, in, in size, you know, in what we do in wrestling because of the success wrestlers have had in the UFC. Yep. But we're, we're a, a non-revenue sport. I don't want to say we're minuscule, but we're small by comparison. Uh, because of our leadership it, and it's not the coach's fault although the coaches make the rules and basically are the ceos of our sport because the ncaa can't be you know they allow us to have the sport but they don't want to be bothered with it so they just say okay you guys come up with a committee and a committee on committee and you guys make rules and we'll just rubber stamp and say okay so you you put the you put the, the foxes in hen, in charge of the hen house with the, with the coaches, it's not the coaches are going to vote for whatever it happens to behoove them, mm-hmm. so they can maximize their numbers of W's and L's. Yeah. When we have a problem in wrestling, what we have a tendency to do, because some coach figures out how to end run a rule or how to come up with a, a, a sneaky way of making it work for him. Yeah, the game, the system. They... We got we to come up with a new rule to stop that coach from having that happen. So our rule book keeps on getting thicker and thicker, trying to counteract everything. And every rule, well, I shouldn't say every rule, but almost all rules that we have in wrestling that they come up with are designed to penalize. Okay, if you go over 65 mile an hour, you're going to get a ticket for this. <laughs> you know, it's, and we don't incentivize the driver to go 55 versus 65. We always try to penalize in all our rules. So we just, you know, this rule will counteract the last rule, which will counteract the rule before that. And we have a problem. If you would analogize uh, wrestling to having a restaurant, and uh, unfortunately your food is sucks, it's not very good. But uh, you know, and then you buy this restaurant because it's going out of business. You want to have it, and the food's not very good. But okay, and you come in and you say, "What can I do?" Well, I'm going to paint the walls in the restaurant. That'll make the restaurant look better. Oh, okay, let's do that. Well. We're still not getting many people in here. Well, we got to have linen tablecloths. Let's do that. We'll spend some money there. Okay, we'll do that. Well, that doesn't pull anybody in either because the food's not very good. It sucks. Okay, right. well, we're going to put crystal out and candles, operas on the table. So that'll draw people in. 
but the food still sucks. Well, that's not working. We're going to have a valet service for free for parking so that we can make it more convenient for our customers, but the food still sucks. And, you know, every time you do things like that, you haven't changed the problem. The problem is the food sucks. You know, if you fix the food, people don't care if you're using stainless steel or silver. Yeah, if it's delicious, if it's the word of mouth will carry. Paper. Right. And so what we do is, is we're changing everything about the support except for what's important. And, uh, and it, it, we're going the wrong way because the coaches don't want to do. It scares the Jesus out of them to do the things that are necessary. But if we did, our numbers would grow exponentially. I mean, well, fan support, money, income. Let, uh, let me ask you a question because I know like – and it, this seems like the smartest, most genius strategy. And I, I heard it first from you uh, years ago, but I, I'm not sure why nobody – okay – why, in your opinion, are, uh, I mean, I would think that everybody would be going for the pin, but strategically speaking, because you could be behind up points and you pin, you win, but that's not really what's happening. I mean, is it because people are trying to game the system and, and use the point system to win or what, what is that? Well, basically, the, the athlete is not incentivized for the pin. The coach is because he gets extra team points for that. But the coach really doesn't care. If his kids get their hand raised, he's going to win as a team. And Johnny, it, it, to, you know, takedown is still king. You can't pin a guy if you can't get him down on top of him. Yeah. So you have to learn takedowns. And, you know, if, I, if on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm an 8 on takedowns and you're a 6 on takedowns. You'll get it. I'm, I'm going to win. So I don't have to learn anything else. But if I, have to, if I have to split my time between takedowns and pins in the wrestling room every day, instead of having two hours of learning takedowns, if I have an hour of takedowns and an hour for pins, I'm only an hour good at takedowns versus two hours of learning. And my opponent, who might spend two hours at takedowns, he'll take me down, and I'll never get on top of him. To, to, even though I'm really good at pinning, it doesn't do me a darn bit of good if I'm not on top of him. So, you know, takedowns are king. So coaches spend all their time teaching takedowns because there's really no benefit uh, to team-wise for the coach, for his own ego. Uh, if, if they take the guy down and win all the matches, they win the dual meet. You know, w there's no incentive toward the pin. Right. You know, uh, if, you know it, there's a lot of rule changes that I would immediately change for the sport. But if I was king for the day and had one uh, – magic wand that I could wave one time for a change, it, <laughs> yeah. would, be, it would be a point scored. Uh, I'm sorry, a point earned is a point scored. You win five to four. Your team gets five points. The other team gets four points. Mm. If you win 16 to five, it's 16 points for one team, mm. five points for the other. Yeah. There's no such thing as the three-point decision. Yeah. That's socialistic. You know, if I win by one point, I get three team points. If I win by seven points, I get three team points. Yeah, it distorts the I incentives. I my hump, you know, trying to get, trying to earn an extra six points. For what purpose? But I have to take more shots, expose myself to possibly getting pancaked to put on my back or screwing up and losing the match. Why would I do that? You know, I get the same number of team points. It's like, uh, cream, uh, let's say, uh, LeBron James. And the, at the end of the uh, basketball game, the announcer goes, ladies and gentlemen, 
tonight we saw for the first time ever LeBron James scoring 92 points, a new NBA individual game record for him. You know, let's all give him a standing ovation. And they do. And now for LeBron scoring 92 points, his team gets 15 points. <laughs> right. It totally distorts all the incentives. Yeah, so why the hell, why am I running the score up? I mean, you know, but if you get team points, now the, that the same kid is going to win the match, whether he has 82 points or five points. The same kid's going to win. Yeah. But what it changes is the outcome of the dual meet. And that's the, where the coach has his WNL. He has a personal WNL on whether the team wins or loses. And then he has 10 kids in college that are wrestling in different, 10 different weight classes that are going to have wins and losses during the course of the evening. He wants to have his personal win just as he wants his kids to have their individual wins. If, in order for him to have his personal win, his kids have got to kick ass and get out there and start scoring points. And for those who know wrestling are going, okay, well, how do you handle the pin weight? Well, the pin is worth 10 points. Whatever your score is, you get 10 more points. You're up 10 to 2. You pin the guy, you get 20, he gets 2. Now, the score at the end of the first weight class is 20 points for one team and 2 for the other. Okay? And if I was winning 14 to 2 and I got caught and pinned, my opponent gets 10 team points. Mm. So he gets 10 plus 2, he has 12, I have 14. So the match score is I got 14 points, his team gets 12, even though he won, even though he pinned me. It's all about me scoring points and the fans loving it. Right, and then that that young athlete has an incentive to just do the very best he can because he can actually bring those points up and possibly even... Uh, on the team side, win the win the uh, dual meet. Uh, the sure. dual meet for for his team because he but he doesn't have that incentive as it is. Uh, you know, it, 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 hypothetically, it could happen, but it won't happen. But it could that what team could win nine of the ten dual meet or matches and still lose the dual meet? Right. You know, if you have ten guys win by one point or nine guys win by one point, and the other guy who wins for the other team, you know, has a eighteen to three score. Right. And the best way enough for his team to win. Well that's not fair. It's the same way it as is as basketball. Yeah. Right. You know, LeBron James scores, you know, seventy five percent of the whole all the points. Now, now, I don't want to. I don't want to give away the cow. I only want to give these people a glass of milk because it, the cow is over. And what is the actual URL for your uh, blog, Wade? Because your blog is amazing. I mean, you've got like millions of views on your blog, right? Yeah, I just I just hit two million. Wow! And uh, it's wadeshallows.com. So it's just my name and put a dot in the comment at the end of it. Wadeshallows.com. And I mean, you have article after article laying out like your critiques of the way the 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 operational structure is and the benefit of some of these changes it's really a great website uh and we're actually bumping up on our next commercial break so when we come back i do really want you to tell the marshmallow story you know which one i'm talking about right uh, what's what's the age group of people listening to <laughs> they're they're usually adults yes they're adult men so i think it'll be okay there will be, I think, you know, it's any athletes, but I think you can do the, the PC version, I'm sure. Yeah, it's good because then I won't have to bug you because I know every time we go somewhere, I'm always making you tell this story because I just, it, I laugh every single time. It's hilarious. Guys, uh, stay tuned. The Do It Again podcast will be right back after this word from our sponsors with Wade Chalice. Come on back. 
Okay, and we are back. Uh, I've got a uh, a friend of mine, but the guy is so much more than a friend. I mean, he's uh, a mentor to me. Uh, he is a uh, 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 he's helped me in my coaching. The guy is just brilliant, and he's just a hell of a lot of fun to hang out with. On top of being uh, truly a, a superhero in the sport of wrestling, uh, Wade Chalice is with us. Hi, Wade. Hello. So uh, just to get some business stuff out of the way, again, for any of you guys that are in Europe, uh, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast have probably already been to one of your camps with us. Uh, if you're out on that's the other side of the Atlantic, uh, coming up April 14th, you are going to be giving a, uh, uh, a seminar in Northern Ireland. Um, at Score Fight Club. This is Hillsman Way in Coleraine. Uh, and I'm probably messing up the pronunciation and I apologize. But you can reach uh, one of our wrestlers out there. His name uh, is Peter McClay. Peter McClay. And you can call him to get uh, to reserve your space at the seminar. 7 That's the phone number. Phone number in Northern Ireland for Peter McClay to schedule, uh, to register for the Wade Chalice Seminar on April 14th uh, is that phone number again is 078-824-98001. And uh, also, if you want to bring Wade out and again, an All-American in five different combat sports, this guy can help your team uh, go over to the PIN and submit. It's just PIN, P-I-N-A-N-D, submit, S-U-B-M-I-T dot com. Uh, scroll down there, fill out the form, and we can get weighed out to help your guys as well. Uh, okay, before the break, I was teasing this marshmallow story. I I don't know. Maybe other, I just think this is the funniest damn thing. Um, you've, you've traveled the world. You've seen, like... Uh, you were on, I, I, there's this iconic picture of you while you're wrestling for, I think it's with Clarion. Um, uh, were you on the same team or what's the deal with Chris Taylor? I see this picture and you guys are all winning. What What is that photo? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't, but anyhow, Chris, yeah, Chris and I were the same age and uh, we won the NCAAs together a couple times and he was at Iowa State. Uh, all 460 pounds of him uh, and uh, tremendous athlete and uh, even a nicer young man. Uh, Chris was funny. He was big. And if you've ever touched a, a woman's belly when she was nine months pregnant, you know, it's not fat. It's, 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 it's tight. It's firm. Solid. You know, everybody will know solid. We'll know what I'm talking about. Well, Chris was like that too. When you talk about 460 you kind of in your mind's eye, you think of the TV series, my six, my delicious or outstanding 600 pound life or whatever that TV yeah, show is. Yeah. And those people, they're a little bit on the soft side. <laughs> and, but Chris wasn't, I mean, you, you, t- you touch his belly. It was like he was pregnant. I mean, it was, it was solid and uh, he could do double legs and he could do Granby rolls. He was, he was quite an athlete for 460 pounds. Anyhow, he was, he was special. And I was doing, I was back doing his, during the heyday when he was around. That was kind of fun to be around in room with him a couple of times. Well, I remember uh, one thing that's a, a connection for me uh, with you and Billy Robinson was actually Chris Taylor because Chris Taylor then went uh, after doing the NCAAs, he went and started doing pro wrestling and he made a lot of money. He was actually one of the biggest signees for uh, Vern Gagne 
And uh, that's what Billy Robinson was was uh, coaching for Ganya. So um, uh, there's this uh, Chris Taylor. There's this great footage from 60 Minutes when uh, Chris Taylor was going from uh, through the 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 training camp with with Billy Robinson as well. So that's always it's interesting all the little connections here and there. But to the to this marshmallow story. So you're a young man, and you're are you in Russia or what? Where are you? Or no, the Russian team came over here to the United States. Yeah, the, the Russian team came over to the United States. We were in Miami wrestling a dual meet. And then the next night we flew up to uh, Tampa and had another dual meet with the same team. We just went, you know, travel around a little bit like a traveling circus and uh, wrestled the same kids over and over again several times. And, and uh, you know, we usually, you know, wrestled the packed houses. I mean, because the Russian team was over here. That was Back in the 70s, that was an anomaly. You didn't see the Russians. You know, they never left the country. Yeah, that's a and huge draw. You didn't about uh, chaperones. You know, the KGB chaperone. So wow. It affect. Okay, Wade. So you were you were talking before the technical glitch about uh, the the Russian team coming over. Yeah, the the Russians were coming over, and, and when they brought you know their their top top of the liners over, that we were in Miami and uh, in the Soviet Union at that particular decade or time in, in the world in the 60s and 70s you couldn't find a playboy on a, on a, on a shelf in the soviet union and uh, and you couldn't go to a, a burlesque or a, a strip club they didn't have them in soviet union back then but uh the russian males were, were no less of a male than the american boys and when they come over here one of the benefits of making it a, a, a traveling team from the soviet union is be able to come to america and what they would do is they'd buy two, three, five, twelve different Playboys. They didn't care what month or what year, and they'd stick them in their suitcases and take them back, and then they'd sell them on the black market for a hundred dollars a piece. And that's the you same know? with uh, back then in the Cold War. That was the same with like blue jeans, any of these kind of Western things. Uh, but that was like strictly illegal in Russia. Oh yeah, they would they would get in big trouble. But the what would the uh, Russians uh, the government would turn their eye. They didn't have enough money to really do the type of sports program they wanted to. And one of the benefits is they would allow the athletes to come back with contraband mm. and then sell it or give it away or whatever they wanted to do. And they would turn their uh, a blind eye to what was happening because that was the way the athletes, they could pay the athletes without having to pay the athletes. They would have, they would just allow them to, you know, be capitalists, you know, in a, in a communist system. Uh, so that worked out for them. Anyhow, they came over and, and after we wrestled them, I, I, I had mentioned, I said, that, you know, they, they uh, that's club, club, we go club, club. I go, uh, oh, one of the clubs, huh? And uh, yeah, 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 da, da. So uh, I said, well, I can do that for you. So after the match, uh, we, they, the Russians came, they had two KGB agents with them and then a wrestling coach. And the KGB agents would drag chairs out in the hallway of the hotel and sit in the hallway and stare down the hallway at the doors of the different rooms they had the Russian athletes in because they weren't allowed out because they were afraid they'd defect. So they were on the second floor of this hotel on the beach in Miami. And uh, so I went down to a local establishment. I had set up with the owner that we're, I'm bringing the Russian Olympic team down along with the American team. And, uh, you know, we, we, we want to be entertained for the evening. They, they said, great, bring them on down because they had a chance to take pictures and advertise that the Russian Olympic team was it's visiting and enjoying their establishment. So I uh, had it all set up. And uh, so I went down to down two doors to another hotel and I borrowed a, uh, 
ladder from <laughs> their shed and drug it up the beach. And I, you know, I, it was like I was eloping with 20 Russian athletes. I would, you know, I would, you know put the, the uh, ladder up against the building and crawl up and open, you know, tap on the window. They'd open the window, they'd crawl down, and I'd go to the next window. I got all the Russians out, you know, and would jump in a van. We drove down to the, you know, My Oh My Club or whatever it was called, I forget. And, uh, when we went in, the, the owner had kicked everybody off the bar. They had a horseshoe-shaped bar, uh, which the ladies would dance on top of. And, uh, and he kicked all the, all the patrons off. And he, so he lined up the Russians in this certain you know, horseshoe-shaped bar. And they were all <laughs> sitting on the bar with their elbows on the bar and holding their chin up as the ladies would come out and dance. And they would kind of drool and, and stare. And then they'd look over their shoulder to make sure no KGB agent was coming in <laughs> to arrest them. And, they, and then the Americans, we were sitting on regular tables behind them. We were... We, we never even watched the women. Uh, and honest, I didn't. It was more fun watching the their reactions the <laughs> yeah. than it was the girls. <laughs> right. And they were, they were so happy and having so much fun. And, uh, well, it, you know, uh, one of the ladies came out and uh, she, she had some marshmallows, uh, you know, the, the full-size marshmallows, and she would pull one apart and lick the two broken ends, and then she'd stick them over top of certain parts of her body, north of her belly button. Like pasties, and, kind of. Yes. And then she'd bend over and start dancing and, and, <laughs> and, and, and wave this marshmallow in, in one of the wrestlers' faces. <laughs> he, he would have to lean up and, and take the marshmallow orally from, from her yeah. breast. Yeah. And it was really funny to watch. And they were, you know, the Russians would turn five shades of red from the <laughs> but they were, you know, they, they were having fun. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> And uh, so they dance, and that would happen. And of course, you like the story because you could see my visual of me doing this. You know, you know I push my chair back, and then another young lady came out, and she pulled a marshmallow apart, and she licked the end of it, and she stuck it on her posterior, and uh, she bent over backwards, you know, bent over and the waist, and, and then would shake her butt in one of the coaches, or one of the referee, or one of the wrestlers' faces. Yeah. And of course, the wrestler would have to get up and and, and take the marshmallow off her backside. Anyhow, she went to Andiev, uh, who just unfortunately just passed away two weeks ago. Sasan Andiev. Mm. He was a, a eight-time world champion, two-time Olympic champion. He was undefeated. Never, no one ever took him down, more or less beating. You know, he was six eight and three ten, something like that. Andiev, and he was a gymnast. What an athlete he was. But anyhow, she bent over and she and she went after Andiev, and and every time he'd get up on his chair and lean forward, she'd pull her backside, her butt away from his face. And just kept on pulling further and further away. And he'd stretch further and further, trying to, <laughs> trying to reach for it. And then she turned around and then and then made her made her backside go the other direction and banged him in the face with her butt. And he he flipped back off the, the bar stool, landed on his back in the bar. <laughs> and, and 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 Americans just you know no one in America has ever taken this guy down. This lady just took him down. <laughs> Put him on, on his, his back. back and, <laughs> And you know the Russian team are falling off their bar stools from laughing, <laughs> and and you look you look down at poor Andy. I was laying on his back. He's red faced, and he got a marshmallow stuck in his cheek. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Really, that might be the greatest wrestling story of all. Like that is the funniest damn story. Oh my God! I can't then, I can't promise that I won't make you retell that story. That is too and then, damn funny. And then the next night we're wrestling in Tampa. And at the beginning of a dual meet with the international team, you introduce, you know, 105 pounds, Dmitry, you know, uh, Yuryov uh, from the Soviet Union, three-time world champion, yada, yada, from America, uh, Jim Haynes, yada, yada, 
uh, his achievements and so on. Then you walk out, you shake hands, and you'd give him a little American pin. He'd give you a Russian pin or a flag mm. or, you know, some little knickknack that he brought over. typical of the Soviet Union, and we'd give something that was typical of America. Yeah, very, you know, very formal, formal, you know. f- diplomatic, formal event. Right. And then they'd go up the lineup. And when I got the idea, well, you know, well, we'd go to heavyweight. And I went out and I bought two bags of M&M, or, I mean, the marshmallow miniatures. <laughs> and like, you know, it was like rice in a wedding. <laughs> everybody in the American team, a handful of these little marshmallow <laughs> And when they introduced you know, Sassel and Andy from the Soviet Union, he walked out. Everybody's going, yay! And got clapping. And then we, all of us, we, we threw these marshmallows up in the air. <laughs> Oh my god. And nobody in the stands knew what we were doing. <laughs> KGB people were they couldn't figure out what was going on. Andy F was turning you know, he wanted to faint out because he was so embarrassed. The Russian team, you know, they were trying to keep from laughing. They were had their mouth shut from they so they couldn't laugh and were in hysterics on the other side. You know, and uh, it was just a salute to Andy F and the and the fun we had, you know, good natured Male fun, laughter, yeah, enjoyable. Yeah. It was just, it, it brought the teams together. I mean, if you talk about detente, you know, and, and, and enjoying the Russians or the Chinese or the American, it, what I found in all my tra- travels, the closer you got to the city, the capital city of any country, the more obnoxious the people were, the more, <laughs> more it was politics. You get in Moscow, it was horrible. You right. get outside of Moscow, and the people were just like any place else you've ever been. Right. You know, you go out running, you'd stop for a second, sit down on the curb, catch your breath, and someone would tap you on the shoulder. Some lady came out of the house behind you and said, would you like to have some iced tea? You look mm-hmm. like you're hot. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they offer, they open the door to you. They're just, the Russians, the Chinese, every country you go to, the Iranians. But if you got, you know, close to the capital city where the politics took over, Washington, D.C., as today, where, you know, well, if Washington would disappear, the world would be a better place. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, and what I've seen, it, man, that is really true. And I remember growing, because I grew up in this, you know, I was born in the 70s and grew up in the 70s and 80s. And I mean, <laughs> they don't even do it anymore because I got kids now that are, you know, 12 and under. And But man, all the nuclear bomb drills and stuff, like you'd have to duck under your desk. And I mean, like the Cold War was palpable. Like we thought the world was going to end. It was very apocalyptic. And uh, to have somebody just with a sense of humor like that, uh, you know, in a position like that is just amazing, like with those uh, diplomatic connections. Um, And and it's funny, too, because you, you mentioned that about as you get closer to the cities, everything got more kind of disgusting in terms of the way people got along with each other and everybody started being nasty. Um, that's kind of what I see with social media now. It sucks. Like social media is made like everywhere, a big city where everything's political. Everybody's like tribalistic and jumping on their little team and poking at the other team. It's awful. Um, but the, you know, I think that's a nice segue actually, uh, into, uh, Jacob's cradle. Because, you know, you've done like a lot of stuff outside of wrestling. Like a lot of people don't know that you have a couple graduate degrees, um, that, that you've worked in television and such. And um, people don't know that. that you, I mean, that you're an incredible woodworker. Um, 
I mean, you've, you've made me pens and, and, you know, now that I live in Colorado, you made me this cool little pipe. And I mean, it's, I mean, you've got all these other, (laughs) these other talents that are just amazing. And, um, uh, I remember like, God, we've known each other for long enough, but when we first started fooling around was when you were, uh, with writing was when you were writing that, uh, that roast, uh, the roast you were doing, Randy Couture. Oh God. And it's hilarious. I mean, really you, you've got such great, uh, writing ability and then you really got serious. I remember you telling me when we were touring around the pieces and the plots and, and, you know, the things you were stringing together to make Jacob's cradle. And, uh, and now it's actually done. Uh, I I'm holding a copy here in my hand right now. Um, Jacob's cradle. There's more to winning than gold. Uh, a Jacob Charles novel, and this is a little bit almost like a like a Tom Clancy kind of approach. Uh, if you're into Tom Clancy, you'll really like this. And if you're into Tom Clancy and into wrestling whatsoever, you have to get this. Uh, it's is it uh, is it available on Amazon? Uh, well, you can get it at any bookstore, Barnes and Noble, and and even the little mom pa. They'd have to order it. Special but, order, uh, yeah, or, or through Amazon. That's probably the quickest. Amazon, you know. As they as they normally do, you order today, you get it yesterday. So tell tell people a little bit about maybe uh, what brought you to writing it, and then maybe just a little bit of a teaser of the plot line and what what is the story involved. Well, I you know I, I started this uh, quite a few years ago, you know, and I finally got serious about a year ago. I figured I wanted to finish the thing. Uh, I, I wrote the book for my son Jake and Jacob, and uh, his wife is Charlotte. And, and wait, and wait, wait, wait. Again, Jake is another superhuman human being. Uh, I mean, g- very good genetics. I mean, this is a guy who was a Navy SEAL and then decided, uh, you know what, gets through buds, does all this amazing stuff. He was also a high school champion wrestler, goes through buds and then decides, you know what, I want to be a fighter pilot. Then totally switches tracks. I mean, he's an, an amazing human. Yeah, he's, he's flying F-18s now for the Navy. But uh, he and his wife and Charlotte, they got married last October. And I wanted to finish the book for them because the hero and the villain or the hero and the heroine in the book is Jacob and Charlotte. And I wrote it and I had it finished. And the, when it first came off the press, and I had it ranged this way. It came off the press a week before the wedding and they didn't know it. And I gave each of them a copy of the book as a wedding present. And uh, uh, and Charlotte is, is an ex, uh, was, was, was exceptional athlete herself a downhill skier, uh, lived in Blake Placid, New York. And, uh, she's tough as they come. She's probably tougher than Jake is. And so, <laughs> so I, I had to make Charlotte the book, you know, a badass. And she goes, I liked it. You know, when she read the book, I love this. Cause you made, you made her, you made me sound like a badass. And I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you finally get around to writing it. And I think the, 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 uh, kind of the plot, and and the character of Jacob Charles is is a really compelling character, especially for people who are into this kind of international intrigue spy stuff. But then you have a really cool wrestling angle. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the diplomacy and and how Jacob Charles works his magic. Well, I think probably the easiest thing is just go to the back of the book and read the you know the, the summary which or the book. You know, world class wrestler Jacob Charles has more on his mind than the Olympics. As a member of the CIA's Athlete Courier Corps, a covert project that takes advantage of elite athletes' unique ability to cross borders into hostile territory 
without scrutiny. Jacob often moves among people even more dangerous than his wrestling opponents, and he has a personal score to settle with one of the deadliest men in the world. But at the center of his universe is his wife, Charlotte, an independent, freewheeling boat captain who sails the, pri- the pirate-infested waters of the African coast and whose life is about to become even more treacherous than Jacob's. From the Olympic training centers of the United States to the steamy alleys of Castro's Cuba, from the exotic islands of the Indian Ocean to the grand stage of the Olympic Games, author and legendary former wrestler Wade Chalice takes the readers on an adventure like no other love story ever with the explosive and touching Jacob's Cradle. Yeah, it really is good. I mean, I'm not just saying it. it's it's actually. I mean, I'm, I love you, Wade. You know this. I lo- I I love you. And I mean, I was really. And I'm not saying this other than just to say how good it is. I was shocked, really, because it's really good. I mean, it's like stands up there. I mean, and and uh, weren't you able to like get uh, uh, John Irving? Uh, for those of you who are literary people, John Irving is uh, the guy who wrote The World According to Garp, which of course has some wrestling in it. Well, Cider, House, Cider House Rules. Yeah, Cider House Rules. So you were able to, to have him read some and give you some commentary and stuff too, right? Yeah. Uh, see, uh, he's uh, John Irving is also an ex-wrestler. Uh, there's quite a few that are very successful writers who are ex-wrestlers, and John being one of them. And I had the pleasure of sitting with him at a couple of the NCAA championships and and and, and just listening to him talk. You know, when, when you're around greatness, whether it's a tiddlywink player you know, uh, a John Irving from author or, you know, uh, some politician or you get around a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. When they speak, you shut your mouth and you listen. <laughs> and, you know, because they always have things. There's a reason why even, you know, I am very blessed to have an opportunity to meet to, uh, Castro before he passed away. Mm. You know, now he was a rogue and a villain basically on the world stage, but he was also an achiever, yeah. a winner, a champion at what he did. And how he went about doing it. When when you have a chance to lunch with someone like that, you just ask very short questions, and then listen for a half hour because there's there's gems that come out of everyone's mouth on why they are where they are, how they did it, you know, and why. And yes, then sir. You, you, you turn that and convert it over into into your career or things that you have yet to do and want to do. You know, how do you go about it? I mean, uh, and uh, you know, just when I had a chance to. to talk to mr irving you sit down and be quiet yeah you know he's i mean he's he's a master author so so and and it says here in the bottom right of the cover a a not the a jacob charles novel so does that imply that you're working on the second uh installment i'm i don't want to say i'm halfway into it but i'm 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 getting close to halfway into the uh into the uh sequel yeah, it's nice for people who do pick up a book like this and get involved with the characters and the story to know that the author isn't just going to leave it hanging, that you're actually working on uh, future uh, you know, narratives and story arcs and whatnot. So, guys, it's uh, Jacob's Cradle, uh, just like it sounds, Jacob's Cradle. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon for most of you guys, or if you're at a Barnes & Noble or whatever, even though those are shutting down left and right these days, I guess the Internet's taking everything over. Uh, go and special order it or just go to Amazon, uh, Jacob's Cradle by Wade Chalice. And also, uh, if you guys are in Europe and anywhere, you know, you could fly into North Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, 
He's going to be there uh, on the 14th of April. Uh, you can reach, uh, to, to get registered, you got to call our guy out there. His name's Peter, Peter McClay, phone number 078-824-98001. That's at Score Fight Club uh, in Hillman's Way, uh, Coleraine. And again, sorry if I'm messing up the pronunciation. Uh, just reach out to Peter. Again, 078-824-98001. And if you do want to get weighed out uh, to your gym, here in the States or wherever it might be, just go over to the pin and submit.com site, scroll down to the bottom. You can read all the ad copy or whatever, but scroll to the bottom and go to the, um, the, the form and fill it out and we can get somebody who'll contact you and, and get weighed out to you guys. Um, Wade, anything else that you'd like to cover before, uh, before we wrap up today? No, I think we've covered enough there. People are tired of listening to me. Uh, oh, <laughs> I don't, the, I don't know about and, that. In Northern Ireland, it's it's right outside Belfast to give somebody an idea where Coleraine is. Okay, you know? okay, good, good. Well, Wade, thank you so much, and uh, appreciate you, and uh, have a safe trip. I thank you. It was quite nice. Okay, guys, uh, that's another episode in the can of the Do It Again podcast. Stay tuned next week. We'll have more fun. <laughs>